day when I stand before the throne with the generations and I get to I get to stand beside Moses. I have grown to love that man from all I now it makes my husband a little jealous when I say that, but I mean it in a good way. I have grown to love him. Was he perfect? I hope I'm not passing that message along that I think he's perfect because he was not perfect. Remember, he didn't get to see the promised land. Why? It was, it was a root of pride expressed in anger. So he still struggled, just like we're going to struggle from time to time. But he learned how to lead his people into the promised land most of the time with humility. And so I don't want you to leave here feeling a little discouraged, thinking, I can never be perfect. I'm not asking, or God's not calling you to perfection. He's just calling you to listen. Am I perfect? I, I feel awkward sharing on humility, because if anybody shouldn't be, it's me. I, I was telling Paula last night the table, I still am studying. I'm still reading books and picking up books and reading them on humility. And I was reading a book yesterday and I read this little story of Jonathan Edwards. And he apparently had a groupie, some guy that traveled with him and wanted to hear every message. And this guy would, you know, always claim like the front row seat, the closest to where Jonathan Edwards would preach, a, a young man who wanted to be in ministry, and so this young man happened to be at one of his events sitting in the front row, and as soon as the message was over, he jumps up, and he, he rushes to Jonathan Edwards' side, and he says, oh, sir, what a great message. May I be the first, have you all heard this story? Because this is new to me. Can I be the first one? to congratulate you and tell you what an absolutely incredible message that was. And Jonathan Edwards looked at him and he said, Oh, son, you're not the first. The devil has already been speaking in my <laughs> Just beat me across the chest with a baseball bat. <laughs> because... Speakers sure like the validation, right? They want to know it's hitting home. Uh, and so I stopped right then and said, Lord, may this not, this never be about me. May this always be about you and you being seen and not me. This morning, we're going to look at three little pictures, snapshots, I call them, of Moses in the wilderness. Before we do, I want to share a story with you, um, and I'm going to prelude that story with another little story, but years ago, somebody asked me if, and, and you saw if you did the little booklets, the autobiographies and the questions, the last question you got was if, you know, if you were to, <laughs> nice question, Richard, if you were to pass away today, what is it you would like to have people say about you? Or, in other words, if you were to have somebody write a message on your tombstone, 
or an epitaph, what would you want that to say? And I thought, well, interesting question. I think I'm going to give that some consideration. And I happened to be reading at the time in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you know, Paul's talking to Timothy about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And I can understand that in my house, I have a vessel of dishonor. We call it the puke bucket. It's not very honorable. But I also have been given some beautiful pieces of crystal that were my husband's mother's mother's. And, and I have the most gorgeous crystal ice bucket. I don't get the two confused. <laughs> I do, I, but so I'm looking at those and Paul is tell, saying to Timothy, but I pray that I will be, not the vessel of dishonor, Paul's saying, we don't, no, Timothy, we don't want to be puke buckets. We want to be crystal ice buckets. We want to be vessels of honor sanctified, set apart, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 2.21. And I thought, that's my epitaph. If I were to drop over right here, would somebody please tell my husband that's the verse I once used for me at my funeral, if you can say it honestly and genuinely. Um, I think it's Moses' epitaph. If there's a New Testament verse that he would want spoken over him, I believe that was it. That he was useful. That he was a vessel the Lord could use for honor. That he was set apart for the Lord and prepared for every, every good work. Before we jump into the snapshots of Moses' life that I have picked to show his humility and to kind of uh, give a, an overview of what I think someone who walks in humility looks like. I want to share a real life story of someone who is dear to my heart who passed away this last July. So when my husband and I went to the mission field, I'm going to try to do it without crying because I've not had COVID on this yet. But in, when, we went to the, when we went to serve in Kenya, we became very dear friends with a couple who worked at the medical part of Rafali Academy, and they worked down at the Kajabi Hospital. <coughs> and they, that couple took us under their wings. They became mentors for us, they became role models for us, they became family to us. My kids still call them Uncle Dick and Aunt Millie. Their kids still call us Uncle Bay and Aunt Peg. And we loved him. Anytime I passed Dick as he was walking across campus, he would, I could count on it 100% of the time. He would stop me and say, what are you reading now? He was always challenging me, always pushing me, always wanting to see me become a better version of who I was. He was on the mission field, they were both on the mission field for over 36 years, serving in, um, not just in Kenya, but in other, other countries all around Eastern Africa. His, his um, specialty was disabled children. And, and if anybody 
in third world countries are marginalized and overlooked, it's the disabled. But he would go and perform miracle working surgeries. Kids who never had opportunities to walk were beginning to walk again. And and, and just straighten spines, you know, spine of effort, and he would he would operate on them one after another and just the Lord used his hands. In 2010, he was, um, for World Magazine, picks a Daniel of the Year award every year. He was their Daniel of the Year in 20, 2010. So I want you to have that background, but that's not the story I want to tell you. During our years there, there were 12 extremely scary days in the life of my family. My seven-year-old daughter and my husband both came down with malaria. Dick treated them, and he uh, gave me the medications for them. But as he was examining them, he said, I need to warn you that this, this is a, a serious case of malaria, but it may even be black water fever. And I need you to know ahead of time because I don't want it to catch you off guard. So I went to the library because I'm a, kind of a newbie. I don't know what black water fever is, but 50% of people who contract black water fever die from it. And so I never made phone calls home. It cost at that time $5 a minute to make a phone call home. But I went ahead and called home, got my husband's dad on the phone, and asked for their prayers along with our supporting church and friends in the area. And so they began to pray. At that, during that time, I was burning the candle at both ends. The medication schedule that Dick had me set my husband and my youngest daughter up on was alternating every about every hour and a half to two hours. And so I would just start to fall asleep when my alarm would go off and I'd have to get up to either get them quinine or an antibiotic where there was something else he gave me to get them. And I was getting very little sleep. Besides that, I was having to teach my classes. I was having to teach my husband's classes because there weren't enough substitutes. I was get this, I was coaching the basketball team. <laughs> Along with taking care of my other two kiddos that were there with us, and a dorm full of 30 boys who needed me constantly, mostly for food. <laughs> so I, I was tired, right? And needless to say, I was tired about... Oh, and the other thing, both my husband and my daughter were absolutely delirious with such high fevers. I, I woke up at 2 one morning to give, it was a Friday night, or well, it was actually Saturday morning, to give my daughter her medication, and she wasn't in her bed. And I, could, I looked all over for her. She wasn't upstairs. I ran downstairs. She was at the door, which is locked, fortunately. She is dressed to the hilt including a little purse and her fancy shoes, she's on her way to church. <laughs> there was another time I walked into the bedroom, my husband was sitting up in bed, and he was going, stand still, I said stand still. And I 
what are you doing? And he said, look at Kelvin over there by the, by the falls. He keeps backing up and he won't stand still and he's going to go over the edge and I need to get a picture of him before he does. <laughs> About six days into this 12 days, six or seven days in, one blessed Sunday morning, about 10 a.m., my door opens and I hear a hody, because that was the way we greeted as we came into the houses. And there stood Dick Bransford in his hospital scrubs. He had come straight from either doing surgery or rounds, I don't remember which. But there he stood, and he said, you are going to death. And I am here to take care of the dorm and your kids. And for five hours, I slept. Five uninterrupted, blessed hours. He gave them their meds on time. He Shoot away dorm boys, he fixed my kids breakfast and lunch. And he was there until I woke up. Who does that? He had a family he needed to take care of. Five kids at home, and he came to my house. He had a hospital filled with patients, surgical patients, that he needed to take care of. The next day, he was leaving for the island of Lamu, where he had found favor with the government. Lamu, if you don't know, is a completely Muslim country. Going and stepping foot onto the island of Lamu is like stepping back into the 15th century. But he had found favor with the government, and he would go there every two to three months and perform surgeries, life-saving surgeries. And he took five hours, five hours, to let this young mom take a nap. Who does that? Humility does that. Humility does that. And I never knew another couple like Dick and Millie Bransford, right, Carol? Not another couple like them ever since. He was a gem and the world is going to miss them. With that tucked away in your brain, we're going to look at three snapshots of Moses' life. And we're going to see how humility is played out and what it looks like in the lives of God's children. So first we're taking a look at the burning bush account in Exodus chapter 3. Now I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm going to give you some highlights for the sake of time, but I want you to dive into it later. Read it later and see what the Lord, sit with it, see what the Lord speaks to you. So you know that Moses is now shepherding Jethro's sheep. And he is leading his flock up the mountain when all of a sudden there is this burning bush. Well, the bush... He sees fire and flame, but the bush itself is not burning up. And as he gets close to the bush, Moses hears the Lord calling out to him. 
And I can't read this without thinking of Charlton Heston in the Tick. <laughs> I'm not going to, I don't have a voice. So Moses, he says, Moses. And Moses says, I'm here. I'm here, Lord. And it's interesting because what Moses, is, what Moses uses is a, a very interesting Hebrew word. Now, I have learned that my Hebrew is horrendous um, since I got here because I have some sweet Israeli friends who are here who have helped correct my Hebrew, and I'm appreciative. I'm not mocking that at all. Um, but Moses says, Hineni. Hineni is a Hebrew word which literally means more than raising your hand and I'm taking attendance, I'm here. It's a word that says, I'm here and I'm available. So already Moses' heart, right, is prepared. He says, I'm here, I'm available. What do you want from me, Lord? He recognizes it's the Lord speaking to him. And so he is already uh, submitted and, and ready to see what God has has next for him, but he's a little taken aback by what God is going to ask him to do, and he starts to find reasons why he shouldn't be asked to do what God is asking him to do. But God, he has a way of dealing with that. And two things, two things happen in this account that I think are worth noting. There's a lot that there's a lot. The two things I think in this snapshot of humility. The first thing that happens is the Lord tells him what he wants of him, that he hears the cry of his oppressed people, and he wants Moses to go to them. In verse 11, Moses now says to, to the Lord, Who am I? He's asking a great question. Who am I? that I should be the one to go to the people. Because, you know, remember his past history. He blew it. He blew it. And now all of a sudden, 80 <coughs> years later, God's going to, you know, bring up again that maybe he wants him to be the deliverer of his people. All these years later, who am I? Because Moses had realized through his burning bush experience, that he was a nothing. <coughs> Charles Spurgeon has a, a great quote. He said, when we get to the place where we see ourselves as utterly worthless, we have finally, uh, let, me, let me think. Oh, I lost my train of thought. When we see ourselves as utterly worthless, we have finally reached the right spot. That is what he says. So Moses has now reached a place where God can use him. But he still needs to know who he is. He doesn't understand his identity in Christ. And, and the other piece to that is, all throughout this account, God keeps bringing up, I am. Right here, you once thought you were the I am. You are going to be God. Now let me introduce you to who I really am. I am that I am. I am all that you will ever need. I am the one who will send you. I am the one who will do the work. You are just going to be the mouthpiece and the, and the staff holder. But I am going to do everything else. 
So in light of who God is, the question Moses asks is pretty relevant. Because when he sees the majesty and the holiness of God, he doesn't know who he is. And now God has an opportunity to say, this is who you are. Remember the song we sang? I am a child of God. I know who I am. My question to you this morning, because this, this is true about, becomes true about Moses, humility knows who they are out of whose they are. And humility walks in that. There isn't a time I speak to women around the states, and there hasn't been a time I have spoken to women in different places around the world that I haven't talked about our identity. We as women, more than anybody, struggle with who we are in Christ Jesus. We tend to forget it. We tend to need to hear it over and over. The Lord has offered us a gift. He's offered us at our salvation. The gift that he offered us was to make us new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17, which happens to be my favorite verse in all the Bible. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are new creations in Christ. He's offered you a gift of a new identity. And, and we look at it, and we look at the gift, and we love the gift. I love to see who I am in Jesus. I love to hear those words spoken over me, that I'm a beloved daughter, a child of the King, that, that, he, that he delights in me, that he sings over me, and he rejoices over me. We love to hear those things. But somehow there is a disconnect that the enemy puts between what the gift is and how we, uh, Adria said, do we really believe it? But more than even just believing it, do we really receive that gift? At Christmas, I got a, an electric kettle. I, I was really wanting an electric kettle. I, I wanted my water hot fast so I could get my tea faster. So I, it would be great to just sit there on my counter and look at it and go, oh, I really want it. An electric kettle. I love that electric kettle. And never plug it in and never use it. That's not receiving the gift. I want you to close your eyes for just a minute. I want to read to you a few words, pairings of words, that talk about who you are. And I want you to maybe just think, what resonates with my soul today that I need to really not just believe, with, believe it in my head, but receive it and then live it out. So, in him I am, in him you are. Oh, sweet daughters, sweet daughters of the king, you are masterfully created. Intimately known, deeply loved, unconditionally adored, personally called, sacrificially forgiven, instantaneously transformed, permanently adopted, 
You are righteously equipped, individually tasked, specifically commissioned, relationally encouraged, divinely led, sovereignly protected, ferociously defended, magnificently elevated, joyously crowned, decisively victorious, eternally destined, graciously restored. You are tenderly unbound and spiritually cleansed, lovingly redeemed and securely sealed. You are supernaturally empowered and generously provisioned. You are. That's the gift you have been given. I want to ask you to receive it. I want you to think about those words. I want you to go home. I want you to grab three by five cards or business cards that are blank. I want you to write those words on it. I want you to plaster them all over your house. If nowhere else, plaster them on the mirror in your bathroom. And every morning, I want you to get up and I want you to remind yourself who you are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to stand in front of the mirror. And before you brush your hair and brush your teeth and put on your makeup, I want you to look in the mirror just like you are. And I want you to tell yourself, I am a beloved, unique, valued, special child of the King. And then I want you to brush your hair. Put your makeup on. Get dressed. Straighten your crowns. And I want you to disappear into the holiness of God. Because it's not just about you. And here's the thing. That's why I love that Andrew Murray quote. Humility is disappearing into the holiness of God. Because when there's a subtle line that's drawn between needing to be reaffirmed in our unique, beloved state and pride. Even, even needing the pats on the back and hearing who I am in Christ Jesus can be twisted to pride if we're not careful. The enemy, remember that, he will use anything at any time. Anything. So remind yourself who you are. Thank the Lord for it. And then disappear into the holiness of God so that he is seen and you are not. All right, we're going to look. I, in the next section, I before when I gave the, the verses to Lee, I, I gave her just the first part in Exodus 32. And I'm, I'm going to briefly go over that, and then we're going to land in Exodus 33, which I actually forgot to put on that. But you know the story. Moses goes to the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and while he's up there, right, he, um, he, the people down below just go crazy, and uh, the Lord sends Moses back down, and he's angry at the people because they have... They have gone to Aaron, and they've said, Moses has been gone far too long, and we, we, we 
another God. Uh, apparently, God is not sufficient enough, even though he's led us through the wilderness all these years to now, God is not enough. And so, I love Aaron's response when he tries to explain it to Moses. He says, well, the people brought me all their gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out jumps a golden calf. <laughs> I don't think that's quite what happened. They fashioned a golden calf. And if I'm not mistaken, I read through some history books, that golden calf was a kind of a, a kind of a traditional cultural thing in the area during that time. I have always thought of it, I've always seen of it, seen it as this quite large, almost lifelike sized calf that was fashion and the people danced around that and had their big celebration and orgy and the big party. But, but the history that I read said that was very unlikely. That the calf that they actually formed and danced around was probably no more than about three to four inches in size. Isn't that remarkable? The things that we idolize <laughs> and we celebrate as being um, a, in place of, in place of God in our lives. So the people are dancing. God sends Moses back down the mountain. And when he gets down to the mountain, what I want you from the mountain, I, I want you to hear what the Lord says to Moses. Um, you can go ahead and depart, he says in verse 1. Go on up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And then he goes on in verse 3, and he says, God says this to Moses, But I will not go up with you. I will not go with you. For you are a stiff-necked people. And actually, when the people heard that, they appropriately, it says when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And Moses mourned too. He goes on and, and God repeats it. He says, my, my, uh, I, I will not go with you. And then Moses says to him, I don't know. I don't want to go. If you are there, if Moses says, see, you say, bring me this up, bring up this people, but you, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. You've also found favor in my sight. But therefore, if I found pleasure in your sight, please show, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, please consider and remember this. This is your people. Do you want the people around you to now laugh at us and say, what happened to your God? He just deserted you. And Moses begs the Lord to go with him. Because Moses recognizes one thing. We can have all the blessings in the world, but if we don't have God's presence, we have nothing. Humility always walks and longs for God's presence. So two things we ought to know. Humility walks and lives in, in your identity based on who God is. But humility 
will not go anywhere if, if it's smart without God's presence. I can't imagine trying to stand. I know God has called me to speak his word from time to time, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine doing that without the presence of the Lord. I spend more time in prayer, I honestly believe, than I spend writing the messages that I'm going to share with you. Because I recognize I, if I do it, if I say it with my mouth, it will never touch a heart. It will never reach a life. It will never bring about change. And isn't that the purpose of this? Isn't that the purpose of what we do? Isn't that the re kind of the reason behind why we go? We want to see lives changed and, and transformed for the glory of God. It's not about us, but it becomes about us when we rely on our own strength instead of just resting in the Lord, abiding in Him, and letting Him take over and do what He does best. So many times, early in earlier years of speaking, I sought the gift of being able to present well before I sought the giver of the gift. And I will not do that again. I will never do that again. It, it, I may as well not speak a word, except for knowing that the word of God never returns void. But I, I'm best to not speak a word than to not have the giver of the gift present with you, moving among you. We're going to move on to one more passage of scripture, and now we're going to go to Numbers. And this is the passage where, from, oops, sorry, I moved over. There we go. So, in Numbers, chapter, did I say chapter 1? It's Numbers chapter 12. I picked the wrong thing. That's the problem my husband says with using an iPad instead of having a Bible. <laughs> Verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he married. For he married a Cushite woman after Zipporah, his wife, or Zipporah, passed away. And they said, and I just love this, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? And the Lord heard it. Now, this is where we hear Moses saying that man Moses was very meek. He was the most humble man on the face of the earth. <laughs> and suddenly the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, the three of you, and go to the tent of meeting. They're called to the principal's office. <laughs> and there they stood at the entrance of the tent, and a pillar of cloud came down and called Aaron and Miriam forward, and they hesitantly, I'm sure it doesn't say that, but I can picture it in my mind, they hesitantly come forward. And the Lord says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful. 
in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. And when the cloud was removed over the tent, Miriam was leprous like snow. Not, a, not Aaron. I have a theory on that, <coughs> probably, because he was a priest. And to be defiled as a priest, and he could not perform his duties, and that was perhaps more important. I don't know that. But Miriam's leprous like snow... And Aaron says, oh, Lord, don't punish us. We've done foolishly, and we've sinned. And Moses, what does Moses do? Sweet, sweet man. If he were paid for us, he'd go, that's right, Lord, smoke him. <laughs> Spank him. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't. And for that, Miriam is most grateful. Because the Lord gave her a time out for seven days outside the tent where she could sit and she could reflect and she could think about what she had done and she could repent of what had happened and the Lord removed her leprosy and she was restored to the camp. And who restored her? Who spoke the words of restoration? Her brother, Aaron, because he was the, the Levite, the priest. And God was redemptive, all because of the humility of one man. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. Humility is always for the other person. Humility is always reaching out in love for the other. Always. I jotted down just a few things in my notes, and in order to be able to do this quickly, I just want to share some things. This is what I learned. Humility says, I am third. That's the bracelets that you've got on your chair. I am third. What, did Jesus, what does Paul say to the Philippians? Jesus gave up his rights in chapter 2. Right? Verse 3 to 8. Jesus gave up his rights, and he came down to earth, taking the form it, by choice as a slave, that he might serve other people. He chose slavery to be for us, so that he might die, that we could have eternal life. Humility says... That's the way of things. It doesn't mean we don't self-care. Don't, it doesn't, doesn't mean we don't get time to ourselves. It doesn't mean that we don't have vacations. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have happy times ordained for us. It doesn't mean that we don't walk in joy. But what it means is humility says, I have a heart for people. I am for them. Humility looks like this. It holds no grudges, just like Moses. It learns not to take things too personally and is fast to get back up and dust off. Humility is quick to forgive. I mean, after all, aren't we all born of Adam's race? <laughs> We're all sinners. Um, and so we should extend this. Humility always puts others first or puts others' interests ahead of our own, as Philippians 2 says. Humility knows that love matters. Love 
matters. Humility steps into the Shema for itself. It says, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and strength, and I love everyone else around me as myself. That's what humility does. Humility says, I am third. Moses showed it in the wilderness with the stinky people he was asked to shepherd. <laughs> Dick Bransford showed it to a naive, tired little mama who needed a break. <coughs> Humility does those things. And I just want to close with this. In Deuteronomy 8, the Lord says this to the children of Israel as they are getting ready to walk into the promised land. You shall remember, you, girls, you shall remember the way the Lord your God has led you all these years, sometimes through the wilderness, that he might humble you and test you, that you might know and see what is in your heart. He's done that for me regularly. And as he humbled you, he allowed you to be hungry, and then he fed you with manna. And I pray he has fed you with manna over these three days. Manna that you didn't know. That he, in, order to, in order to do so, he might cause you to also remember, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me close with a little prayer from Valley of Vision. O God of the open ear, O God of the open ear, teach me to live by prayer ever sitting with you in conversation at the well of living water. I am nothing but that thou makes me. I have nothing but that I receive from thee. I can be nothing but that God you yourself adore me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with joy in your presence. So 